we're going to continue uh, right along in the book of First Samuel. We're going to be here for a pretty good while, uh, through most of the summer, actually. We're just going to go bit by bit. And uh, we left off last week where we ended in verse 20, where it said the Lord finally gives Hannah a child, and they named him Samuel. And so that's where we're going to pick up. But before we get going uh, in verse 21... One of the things that's happening in Hannah's life that she does for us that's displayed here in this text is she really gives us an idea of Christians, how we are supposed to be interacting and acting with culture, how we're supposed to be worshiping and serving, uh, how we're supposed to focus our attention and really internally try to reset in some ways. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to see the posture of a very godly woman who was theologically astute. She knew deeper theological things and she really just teaches a a pretty good Sunday school lesson and a small group lesson about the character and nature of God. But more so than that, we begin to see in her behavior and in her posture in response to the Lord answering her prayer. And she's got some things that are, that are characteristic of her demeanor that we need to learn from and gather from because we live in a culture of, of outrage. We live in a, in a culture that feels like they're, they're owed something or something was taken from them, that we're extremely angry just as people in general. And you don't have to go through social media too far to really figure out what everyone's upset about today, and it'll change an hour from now, and then there will be something new that pops up on the radar. And so in comes God's word for us. In the book of 1 Samuel, I'm going to read verse 20, and then we're going to read these next few verses. So it says this, the same where we ended last week. In due time, Hannah conceived, bore a son. She called him Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Then the man, the husband, Elkanah, and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and he will dwell there forever. So something is going on here in this moment that's really meant to strike us as a little bit odd in the midst of the text. Elkanah is bringing his family to the house of worship. Hannah decides I'm going to stay back. And the reason why she stays back at this point was because the last time she was in the house of the Lord and she prayed and she cried out for God to answer her and to, to look upon her servant and to, to give her a child. And then she vowed that the very next time she would go back into the house would be when she offers up her son once and for all to Eli the priest so that he would serve all the rest of his days in the house. And so she tells Elkanah, go ahead, I'm, I need to finish being a mom these first couple of years before I go in. And what we learn from her doing that, because if she would have gone up there with him, she would have not been able to take him back to the house to continue to do the things that she needed to do as a mother. And so point one, where we just gather from there, is we see that Hannah, uh, she, she gave out of a posture and a rhythm of faithfulness. She made a vow, and she remembered the vow, and she honored the vow. Now, I don't have to go very far by way of just application and trying to wrestle with this. You see, she was faithful to her promise, and what we do when we look at Hannah in the midst of this is it should cause us to ask the question, are we being faithful in the same manner and in the same way that Hannah was? You see, we are a a called-out, redeemed people, that we serve a very faithful God. 
And because God has been faithful to us as, as people, it doesn't mean we haven't had hard times and difficult times, but he's been a faithful God all throughout the generations. And because God is faithful, we can be faithful in turn. But yet we live in a world of broken promises and heartache. My question to you this morning to get you thinking is, are you being faithful to your promises? When you tell your spouse one thing, do you honor the thing that you, you say you will? When you promise your kids certain things or you promise the Lord that you're going to do certain things, are you being faithful like Hannah is? Are you understanding that your faithfulness is derived from the fact that God is faithful and he's given me that identity so that I can then go out and live and be a faithful person and I can honor my promises. I can keep the things that I said I was gonna do, my, my wedding vows, my responsibilities to my, my kids, my coworkers, my teachers, my friends, that I can be faithful. Hannah gave out of her faithfulness. One theologian put it this way. He just said simply that one of the, the rhythms of the Christian just ought to simply be that one of the, the, the most palatable forms of evangelism that, that we can do and embody is just to be a faithful presence to people. Embodying the gospel, you want to know what the most countercultural thing to do today is amongst every other thing? It's just waking up on Sunday morning and being faithful and coming to church. And this is going to be far more difficult as culture changes and the cities change and, and people uh, tend to, to do what was right in their own eyes, like we saw in the book of Judges last week. We just simply embody a faithful presence to our church family by being here and serving and getting in our circle and evangelizing and seeking to disciple and to be discipled. The text goes on and it says, beginning in verse 23, we see that Elkanah, her husband, says to her, you do what seems best to you. Wait until we have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained, nursed her son until he was weaned. And when she had weaned him, she takes him up to the Lord and notice what she brings with her, a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young, and they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. We see Hannah being faithful in her promise to the Lord, but now we see Hannah giving to the Lord in what can only be characterized as just a spirit of generosity. So a couple of things are, are happening here in the midst of this. Notice that it says that there's this three-year-old bull that she brought up. Well, Old Testament scholars will argue till they're red in the face about the nuance of this Hebrew word. And there are some scholars that will render it, not a three-year-old bull, but they'll say that she brought three bulls with her and sacrificed all three of them. And they'll go back and forth on all the semantic meanings of these Hebrew words and, and really missing the point because the reason why we know and it's known to us that she does this is because the text is trying to show us the posture of generosity that existed within her. So she not only sacrifices a three-year-old bull or three bulls, whichever one it happened to be, but it doesn't matter. She brings a, a big old sack of flour with her that was expensive and then she brings a bunch of wine and this would have been carried in a, in a vessel that, that would have been, scholars say, is about 20 to 25 liters of, of wine. Not, not grape juice from a diehard, red-in-the-face Southern Baptist, but real wine, fermented grapes she brings as an expensive offering to the Lord. 
And we see her generosity that is displayed in this. And so here's the challenge for God's people this morning. We, like Hannah, when we see Hannah practice generosity, when we remember, like Hannah, that Hannah had been generously, uh, had been generously served by a very generous God. And so what that means is, with those two things being true, we ought to be, as believers and followers of Christ, the most generous people in our country, in our world. Travis Avenue Baptist Church ought to be the most generous church in all of the city of Fort Worth. When we wrap our heads around this idea that, that my posture in this life is not to be one that is self-serving but self-sacrificial and to be generous with things that I have that God gives, that he entrusts with, whether it be my money, my time, or whatever my talents are, that I practice a spirit of generosity like Hannah did and I bring those things back unto the Lord. But then notice the text keeps going and he says, and she says in verse 26, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, talking to Eli the priest, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he has lent to the Lord. We see Hannah in this posture of not just faithfulness and generosity, but do you see the, gr the gratitude that exists within Hannah's relationship before the Lord? Talking to Eli, the, the priest, Hannah understood, rightly so, that her most prized possession, the thing that she uh, wallowed in, in pity and anguish and grieved for years, that she endured hostility from the other wife that was in the house, the very thing, the only thing that she ever wanted, God gives it to her, and now comes the day where she has to give him back. Why? Because Hannah understood that all that God gives us belongs to him and is intended for our good and his glory. Every single possession, every dollar bill to your name, every clothing that exists in your closet, the car you drive, the home that you live in, the apartment that you stay, the furniture that you have, the relationships and the friendships that you have, every single thing that is in your life has been given to you as a gift from the giver. It's been given to you. And you've been tasked with this incredible opportunity as, as the Lord gives gifts, we, we get to steward the gift just for a little while. So what that means is, is how we use our homes and how we view possessions, uh, how we view our time. It's not really our home and our possessions, but it's God. Everything that he gives is for your good and for his glory. And we should work with that being our aim and leveraging the resources that God has given us for his namesake. If you notice in verse 28, he, she uses this sort of weird phrase and, and she does it for a reason. He, she says, therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is, he is lent. In the Hebrew, um, what's happening here in the text is this word lent that's used there, I'll put it up on the screen, it's just the word sa'al, S-A-A-L with a little bit of a hyphen in between it. Now, when you read that phrase, it, it does mean lent, but it also is meant to be a wordplay. 
And what Hannah's doing in this moment is she's uh, making us sort of look down the road a little bit in 1 Samuel, really to about chapter 8, where we are introduced to Israel's first king, the man by the name of Saul. And what happens at the end of 7 and 8, the people begin to cry out to God and they say, listen, we want a leader and a ruler like all the other countries around us. And what that request was, was really a posture of disobedience that the people of God had. And so what Samuel is doing for us, or what Hannah rather, as she's saying this, she's using the, a very particular word that when read aloud in the Hebrew, the, the, the readers and the recipients would have immediately connected this idea of Saul, Saul all being lent to the to God being given to God versus Saul the the king the the wicked king who who turned his back on the Lord and it's meant to be this wordplay interchange that exists because there was never a reason for Israel to cry out for a leader and rebel against their Lord by calling for a king and so she sort of throws this in there for a particular reason so that we will begin to see uh, the dichotomy that now exists upon here, but she gives all that she has back to the Lord, a substantial gift. I know some of you in here are parents. I know some of you uh, are just college students or high school students. You don't have kids, and so what I'm gonna say to you is not necessarily pointed at you, but it's something that you need to understand as you get older, and parents, we need to be reminded of this today. That as Hannah practices this place of, of generosity, we also understand as she gives Samuel to the Lord in the house of Eli to, to serve there in the temple, we recognize this truth that parents are but stewards of a child's upbringing on behalf of the Lord. Meaning our children are not ours, but they're his. And God brings them, and we have been entrusted to, to raise them up in the house of the Lord. We've been instructed to teach them, to, to guide them, to shepherd them, to set them up so that they will flourish. But the truth is, we, our kids are not ours. They are the Lord's. And we raise them as such because at some point, we're going to unleash them onto the world for what purpose and for what aim. Many parents are motivated by, well, we want you to go to the right college so you can have the right job and the right career. And we care deeply about those things and don't just diminish those things. And we serve wherever it is that God has us. But listen to me, we raise our kids with the understanding that whatever their vocation in life is, that God would use them to bring about his kingdom here on this earth. Because they're his children, not yours. And we steward just for a, a moment in time and, and we help them try to get ahead and, and to be successful, but we recognize the reality that our own kids are the Lord's before they are theirs. And take it a step further, I would even go so far as to say this, that God gives us children not to build our reputations, but rather to proclaim his. My dad used to tell me growing up, remember you're an Erickson. I say that to my kids sometimes when I, when I get them out of the truck for to go to school. Remember who you are. Don't forget, you've got my name, right? Like my reputation is at stake, right? So, so do well and, and do good. Remember who you are. But the truth is that according to the gospel and this understanding, even with H Hannah, as she illustrates this, children are not given to uphold our own reputations, but rather to proclaim the, the message of the kingdom, that it's at hand and that it's here and that we need to turn to him and, and to press in to the Lord and to be saved and to be redeemed. 
But then Hannah goes on, or Samuel goes, and he keeps writing, and he says in verse one of chapter two, it says, he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. In just two verses, Hannah reminds us what some systematic theologians take 400 pages to to talk about in in large works of of theology. And it's just simply this idea that there is not anyone like the Lord our God. He is set apart and he is holy and he is righteous. And she gives us this profound theological framework that when we give the glory back to God, we are recognizing first and foremost that he is holy. Holy. In the Hebrew, we transliterate this word, just simply we pronounce it phonetically, kadush, and and it means to be cut, to be separate from, from everything else, to be cut off from everything else, to be in a a class and in a league and and in a division that that is all you and, and is no one else. It's to be distinct from anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. This is what it means for God to be holy. But holiness is not just about being distinct from something. It it also carries with it this idea of being morally virtuous and morally pure. There is no sin. There is no darkness. There is no wrong that exists in God. He is separate. He is above but when you put these two elements of him being separate and, and in a league of his own, but, but morally pure, we come to this understanding that, like the writer of Exodus would say, who is like you, O Lord, amongst the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? We recognize this about his holiness. This is not an aspect of God, like a part of him, but it's his very essence and who he is. He is holy, and he's holy in everything that he does. And what I mean by that is that when we look at God's holiness, every attribute, every action that he does, he is holy in his justice. He is holy in his love. He is holy in his mercy. He is holy in his power. He is without blemish, set apart in his sovereignty. He is always holy in his wisdom and in his patience. He is holy even in his anger, but he is also holy in his grace. He is holy as he is faithful. He is holy as he shows compassion and and pursues you and pursues me. But don't miss this connection. When we believe that God's holiness is his very essence of, of who he is, his holiness in being implies his desire to see that holiness in you. In you. And he does that through faith in his son Jesus and and the spirit of God that indwells in us as he changes us. And what he's doing is he's trying to make us each and every day that we yield to him and we put off the the flesh and we uh, seek to, to live in the spirit of God. He is changing us and he's moving us so that we would look like him 
and be set apart and distinct from all the other people that we would see in this world that are not living for and don't look like Jesus and don't embody him. But notice what he says also at the end. He says, there is none holy like you, Lord, or she says, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. That imagery that exists there is meant to remind us of God being immovable, God being steadfast, like he, he won't change and uh, he doesn't uh, move with the culture. He's constant. He, in him, all of our hopes and, and uh, are safe and secure and we can lean into, as one author described it this way, he said, God is the rock in which his people can always trust because he is the rock that cannot be moved. And so Hannah says, Lord, you are holy. There is none like you. You are the, the rock, you're the immovable rock. And, and my hopes and my dreams and my trust, they're, they're in you because you never change. She goes on and she says in verse three, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions were weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she also, but, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, raises up. The Lord makes pure, makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Something that was remarkable that I've never seen this week and noticed, there are, there are moments in the Old Testament prior to when this book was written where there are references uh, in, in Genesis 3.15, for instance, it's one of the, it's called the Proto-Eangelion, and it's basically the first time that we see in scriptures that God had a plan to redeem his people, but we don't know any specifics really after that. And then what happens is in, in the book of 1 Samuel, which this is remarkable, and I'm, I'm pointing this out because this is one of the very first direct references to the coming Messiah and the anointed one as she prays and it becomes scripture and it was given, my friends, by a woman. And the reason why I say that is because we also live in a culture and in a time and in a place where we are arguing currently on the, the roles and responsibilities of, of women. And, and I just find it very noteworthy that God in his goodness would esteem Hannah to this place where she would sort of begin the front bookend of the history of Israel and, and ultimately their rebellion and then their redemption again. We see as Mary prays a very similar prayer when she uh, can and when she has Jesus that's in her womb and she prays something very similar, almost borrowing from Hannah's language that exists here within this prayer that she prays. And don't miss what is happening. At the end of verse 10, she says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he'll give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. This a word anointed gets transliterated over in the New Testament and, and we use the phrase Messiah. 
And what Hannah is doing here in this moment is, is in the nearness of her moment and in the moment of her triumph and fulfilled uh, faithfulness and, and, and all of the things that she displays, she looks way down into the future. And she says, you're anointed, you'll exalt him. She sees for us what we can't see, and she's pointing God's people that, that one day, the true Messiah, he's coming. The one that's going to be able to perfectly fulfill all of these promises that exist within her prayer, because he's going to be the only one that can ultimately raise up the poor from the dust. He's the only one that can lift the needy from the ash heap. He's the only one that promises us an incorruptible inheritance that one day we are going to get to sit and reign and rule with Christ, with princes. We'll have a seat of honor and we will reign alongside him. Who else could do this? But as Hannah looks down, she says, this anointed one, he, he is coming. And when we look back into it, we see that it was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And so then the call of scripture is, is really simple from that point. It's receive him by faith, believe in him, call upon his name and be saved, repent and, and be baptized. And listen to me, when, when we do that and when we've really been changed with the gospel, we, we have the exact same reaction that Sam had earlier on in our service. Like that's what that looks like embodied. Visibly, that's, that's what it looks like. And, and here's the challenge. Is some of us can remember the day that we were baptized or the day that we were saved and God redeemed us, but we have forgotten what it feels like. And we have forgotten to display that excitement and that boldness just as he comes up out of the waters. And I guess he was watching uh, Bryson DeChambeau like celebrate as his golfing strikes, right? Like he comes up and he's pumped because God had redeemed him and saved him. And we remember that. We, we know that we were excited, but we lose the feeling and the feelings are fleeting. But, but listen, the reason why we come back to church and we worship and we sing and we come alongside each other is because we're saying to one another corporately that why have we gotten over that excitement? Why have we lost that enthusiasm? And so we visibly, we watch it and we go, I need that back in my life. I want that back in my life. Come with me and be as excited with me as I am for Sam. To let that rub off and, 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 and come on you in a way that, that you become reinfatuated with God and his gospel and understand that he's sending you out into the world to make disciples of every tribe, nation, and tongue. What a glorious thing we get to be a part of. What an amazing thing that we get to be a part of. We get to be redeemed and practice that redemption and live as redeemed people. Friends, this morning, my question as we end is simply this. Are you living in such a way that demonstrates you have been redeemed? And if not, why not? This life is fleeting, is a vapor. One day, I know this isn't a good pep talk, but one day you're gonna die. Everybody here in this room, guaranteed. You're gonna die. And the Bible says that God places you here right now for this time, for this moment, and then someday you're going to give an account for how you lived your life. That's the fact. And so why would I live just for this moment and not eternity in mind? 
and get on mission with what God's called us to do as a church, to see people far from God come to know Christ. I got a phone call from Matt Getty. I think it was Thursday or Friday. He said, can we, can we do a baptism on Sunday? I got this guy, Lord just saved him and he's doing some great stuff. And, and uh, you know, back in the day, you, there was a, pro, like a two or three week like, process to get baptized sometimes. And is he ready? Yeah. I said, line it up. Let's go. I wonder if there's some of you that are, that are here today that you need to be baptized. You need to be redeemed and saved. The call of the gospel is this, repent and believe. Nothing more, nothing less. What's your response? Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are good to us. You've redeemed us. I'm grateful for Sam and his testimony today. I pray that that is contagious in this room, that people see that and, and long for that and, and want that. Father, I pray that, that you would continue to grow Sam and continue to surround him with great friends that would love and care for him. I'm thankful that he's here at Travis. And we pray for hundreds of more of Sam's to come into this room. Lord, let it, let it be so. If you would look upon us with great kindness as we, as we go and understand that you've sent us out, Lord, would you, would you help us find all of the Sams in the world, all of, of those who, who are longing to walk with you and to be redeemed. Father, would you give us gospel-saturated conversations this week to tell someone who is far from you about your mercy that you've extended through your son, Jesus. So Lord, would you help? Help us respond now as we sing and gather our hearts to be prepared to be sent out of here. We ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.